Hey, welcome to the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review at Chicago's Cafe Mustache the first Wednesday of every month where we satirize the news of the previous month with hilarious op-ed debate. It's great. And guys, the sound is good this month. We finally did it. It only took us, what, like almost a year and a half of shows? Ha! <laughs> eh, can't nobody say that the Skewer doesn't keep on keep on top of the old technology Anyway, uh, this particular show was recorded on March 1st, 2017. I hope you like it. Oh, finally the appropriate amount. Oh, and then it's just and then it's just gone. Okay, fine. Welcome everybody to the skewer. The skewer. Oh my God! If you know about the skewer, you know that it is a live monthly satirical news review satirizing the previous month, just concluded, uh, with hilarious op-ed debate and live voicemail activism. Skewer. <laughs> Oh, it's just wonderful. Who here is here for the first time, enjoying the skewer? It's delightful to meet you all. My name is Tom Harrison. I'm your host, co-producer, co-founder of the skewer. I'd like to welcome you all. And uh, I'm going to read my little opening monologue about the month. And it's a, it's a sad one. <laughs> Get ready to laugh. <laughs> So, you, what happened this month? Not a lot, right? Like nothing? No, nothing extremely dispiriting for me to grimly recite and then be like, ugh, this. So I'm done. Bye. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. It's like, you guys, do you guys remember learning in school about the French Revolution? Do you remember? Yeah. Remember how they guillotined their leaders in the public square like they made it a big social to-do? <laughs> I vividly remember being in school, sitting in school and learning that, and being disgusted at that, at that concept. To turn something so gruesome as decapitation into public spectacle, to revel joyfully in someone else's violent death. Truly barbaric, hideous, who could sink so low? And now, like, if I had a Facebook invite to Trump's guillotining, <laughs> I'd be like, interested. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'd hit going because I'm not a fucking coward. <laughs> <laughs> this is too short. I'm gonna just pick it up. Cool. But yeah, this month was just it was chock full of reversals and contradictions. That was the theme I kept finding. Every time I thought something was gonna happen one way, it would just go and happen the exact opposite. The shortest month, but just dense with so much bullshit. Case in point, for a good part of February, my core idea for this piece was the Trump administration was so incompetent this month that I finally stopped being afraid. Ha! <laughs> no. <laughs> it circled back. 
The incompetence stopped being funny, which can I just say, how fucking unjust is that? We learned that Donnie is a pee-pee boy, a soggy little baby who drink a de pee-pee. That should have meant something. That should have been my Benghazi. I should have been able to talk about this for years, and we all just forgot about it. Yeah, in the same month where bumbling idiocy meant that Trump's Muslim ban got struck down and actual Russian spy and Pizzagate booster Michael Flynn had to step down from the National Security Advisor post, we also saw Trump call the media the enemy of the people, an extremely Nazi move, uh, tell a Jewish reporter asking him about anti-Semitism to sit down and shut up, and announce that he wants to increase military spending by $50 billion, saying we need to, quote, start winning wars. That's not a metaphor. He does not know what a metaphor is. <laughs> he wants to start a real new war. <laughs> so yeah. Even with all the incompetence, with all the duncery, with, with the truly dim-witted, molasses-thick, doo-doo brains that our leaders are cursed with, oh, there's still a ton to be afraid of. And another reversal, just when we thought there might be a glimmer of hope that Trump could get impeached, which is silly, uh, because as Senator Rand Paul said, it doesn't make sense for Republicans to investigate Republicans. The Senate went and confirmed to Betsy DeVos, confirmed Jeff Sessions, confirmed Rex Tillerson, confirmed Scott Pruitt, even if we were to somehow, by a miracle, burn Trump out of the body politic with a car cigarette lighter that we found in the junkyard. <laughs> the normal-ass GOP, the GOP that was already there, just handed the literal, was handed the literal worst possible cabinet, and they still said yes. They said, yeah, fuck our children, fuck education, fuck the world, fuck the future, fuck minorities, fuck women, and they did it with smiles. Take Trump away, and these people are still there. I'm very funny, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really zinging you, I'm jazzing you up. It's gonna get, it's gonna get worse. Uh, <laughs> But let's not just focus on Trump. I know, this is the first time I've gotten to not just focus on Trump in a while. Usually the op-ed writers avoid him with aplomb and they leave it all to me. <laughs> but there was no end to the reversals this month. We had both the mildest, most comfortable, and most enjoyable February weather literally in Chicago's history. Yeah. And it was a grim climate change reminder that we millennials will not die from old age, oh no. But the water wars that will turn the world into crazy Mad Max vistas. The punchline to that joke was that I said vistas. <laughs> That's mostly for me. We had the Falcons winning the Super Bowl, except no, fuck you, the Patriots ditched. Uh. Eat a dick. <laughs> We had La La Land winning Best Picture, except no, Moonlight did also! <laughs> yeah. It's like for every last minute victory by white mediocrity, there's also the opposite to balance it out. And while, while I do think it's problematic that white mediocrity so often gets more lauded than black or brown excellence, can someone please write a nice blurb about this show? <laughs> And now, here's where it stops being funny. It just starts just getting real sad. 
The thing that killed me this month more than anything is a sort of web of news that came to a head when friend of the show, Joe Anderson, you may know him from uh, previous instances of this show, he's great, uh, but he told me that this month, Breitbart became more popular than Pornhub. I repeat, Breitbart, Breitbart became more popular than Pornhub. I couldn't handle that information. I can see you can't either. It's like learning that cutting off your dick somehow became more popular than like pizza. Like, just me personally, how many people do I know who look at Breitbart? Like none, yeah? How many people do I know who look at pictures of boobies and peepees? Literally all of them. You do, you do, you, you probably do. You, everyone do. So like, think of the person who balances me out in the national average to get Breitbart on top of that. Like, wh wh why? How? How does the nakedly racist, misleading Breitbart, just total shit, how does it win? What is making people say yes to it? At the same time where people are rightfully cheering in the streets that the courts have shut down Trump's evil executive orders, why are ICE agents gleefully saying their job is finally fun again now that they can tear apart any family they want so long as they're brown enough? Where does it all come from? Well, it doesn't come from PewDiePie, but let's start there. Yeah. PewDiePie, if you don't know, is an irritating man on YouTube who yells in an unpleasant way over footage of video games. Because of this, he is one of the most famous people in the world. <laughs> he makes more money in a month than I will, ever. This month he made a Nazi joke and Disney fired him. Yeah, he worked for Disney, yelling at video games. That's our world. That's where we live. Anyway. A lot was made about this. You know, is PewDiePie a racist? Is PewDiePie a Nazi? Is he an alt-right? Is this just a free speech issue? The easy take is like, haha, the annoying YouTube man I hate is a racist. I was right along, all along to hate him. But I feel like that's both too harsh and not harsh enough because I don't think PewDiePie really is racist. I think he's an idiot. Yeah. He made a shock humor joke where he tricked some poor brown people into holding up an anti-Semitic sign. Isn't that crazy? Ha ha ha, what a sign. I truly don't think he was being racially malicious and calling him a racist is unfair, but what he was doing was just a shock humor joke. Except, the shock humor jokes is how we got here. It's how Breitbart got more popular than Pornhub. It's the rotten heart of this whole fucking web. Shock humor, edginess, it's about going too far. It's about going somewhere you're not supposed to, and reveling in the adrenaline rush that comes when you realize you got away with it. You got away with something bad. Now, shock humor is fine as like a tool, responsibly used for a purpose. You may remember, I opened this bit with a shock humor joke. I said I wanted to see Trump publicly executed. We all had fun. We had a little thrill going to that place we're not supposed to go. <laughs> and we got away with it, and it felt good. But I did that shock joke for a reason. 
I wanted to express how my utter contempt with this president has me in a shocking new frame of mind that I never before imagined myself being in, that I am so revolted by every moment in this new America that I find my mind going places it never has before. PewDiePie's edgy-ass, Nazi-ass video game joke was just about how he can make some poor people say edgy Nazi stuff. There's no subtext, there's nothing there, there was no reason except the illicit thrill of telling a Nazi joke because a Nazi joke is wrong. It's all about breaking a rule and getting away with it, laughing at how easy it is to cross the line and dance back over it giggling. Again, I don't think there was any real malice in what he did, but thank God Disney, his employer, wouldn't tolerate it and fired him. PewDiePie was caught in a culture of edginess, of empty shock humor, where your audience demands every day that you cross a new line, that you give them a new thrill as you break a new rule. They want you to go there, that place conventional wisdom says is too serious for you jokers to go. The problem is, when you're on that road, there's nowhere to go but meaner. And that's the key. When your brand is to go too far, you either have to scrap your brand or you end up going really too far. We've seen this with radio shock jocks like a lot, but like who cared then? It was like Don Imus, fuck him. <laughs> but when there's nowhere to go but meaner and when your audience will not let you stop, like PewDiePie, he's irrelevant, he got stopped by Disney, but you stay in that culture, you become Milo Yiannopoulos, a hateful star fucker who, will I, who I will not dignify with another word from my mouth. You keep it up, you become Donald Trump who just yesterday, the same day as his great speech, said that a concentrated nationwide campaign of anti-Semitic terror was actually a secret Jew plot to make him look bad. What? what? Yeah. 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 You keep it up, you create a whole mess of Adam Purintons, the man who shot Indian engineer Srinivas Kuchibotla after being emboldened by Trump's racism. And that's just all Trumpism is, and that's all what that Breitbart is. That's why Breitbart is more popular than Pornhub. They get more of a naughty thrill from Breitbart than from porn. And porn only reminds them of something they don't have. Breitbart is the real thing. It's just shock humor. It's just being openly racist and loving it because you know you shouldn't. It's reveling in misogyny because you know it'll make the women smarter than you mad. It's going too far and getting that rush that comes from being bad. And when pressed, you just laugh at the liberal tears. The time's gonna come when there's no more rush to be had from just saying stuff. There's nowhere to go but meaner. Disney was there to stop PewDiePie. Are you gonna be there to stop Trump? Anyway, this is a comedy show. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we get on with the op-ed part of the evening, which is actual jokes and funnies, um, I would like to bring co-producer of the show, Erica Dreisbach, to the stage for the first voicemail op-ed of the night. Hi, everybody. We're going to make an actual call to the voicemail for the Senate Committee of Homeland Security and tell them what I think of Stephen Kevin Bannon. Spoiler. He's bad. I don't like him. 
supposed to probably smell pretty quick. She, she talks a little bit. She says, like, thank you for reaching the channel. Leave a message. Thank you. Hello, my name is Erica Dreisbach. I'm a citizen who votes in Chicago, Illinois. I'm calling to say you can't let Steve Bannon be on the National Security Council. Number one, he's on there because he put something in front of the president's face and the president signed it. Number two, he sucks. <laughs> To re-record. All right, I'm gonna re-record. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna just do a super short version. Hi, my name is Erica Dreisbach, a citizen in Chicago. Steve Bannon, no on the Security Council. No, that guy sucks. He sucks. No. <laughs> Eric Schreisbach, everybody. Our first op-ed writer of the night is a staff writer at Mike. He has written for Deadspin, Pace, Paste, and New City, among others, and his fiction has been featured in numerous literary journals. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Eric Lutz. I tricked you, it's me again. <laughs> Eric sends his regrets he could not be here this evening. <laughs> he had a work-related travel thing that came up. He couldn't get out of it. You know how it is. But he graciously gave me his text and asked me to read it to you. So what you're about to hear is from uh, his mouth. He is also a white man with dark hair. We all look the same. So <laughs> it is as though he were here right now. So uh, onwards I go. <laughs> There's an old episode of Friends where Ross, who is a scientist, and Phoebe, who writes songs about cats, argue over evolution. Ross, who explains that he has, quote, studied evolution my entire adult life, attempts to convince a skeptical Phoebe that it is real. He is annoying as shit while doing this because Ross is a whiny, selfish penis. <laughs> but he's right. He's right. He points to opposable thumbs, fossils, and other concrete markers of evolution's veracity. Hippy-dippy Phoebe, on the other hand, mentions that she's not even so sure about gravity. She's got an open mind, so open it's full of air. When she first makes the claim at the top of the episode, it's a laugh line. But by the end, the writers clearly want us to take her side, as Ross's refusal to accept her opinion as valid comes to appear closed-minded. Up until like 50 years ago, you people thought the atom was like the smallest thing, until you split it open and this whole mess of crap came out, says Phoebe, who in a later episode steals a little girl's cat because she believes it is possessed by her mom's spirit. <laughs> Now are you telling me, are you telling me 
then you're so unbelievably arrogant that you can't admit there's a teeny tiny possibility you're wrong about this. I've always regarded this as one of the most frightening episodes of any sitcom ever. <laughs> Including that Gilligan's Island where Mr. Howell pretends to have drowned in quicksand so he can watch his own funeral. <laughs> Ross was right, I thought. How can he be the asshole in this situation? In the 15 or so years since I first saw the episode, it still doesn't sit well with me. But I at least kind of get it. Maybe. Phoebe isn't a scientist. Her believing or not believing evolution has nothing to do with the reality of it. Perhaps the joke isn't that Ross is... That Ross is... Being closed-minded by asserting his rightness. Perhaps it's that he's mistakenly fixated on proving his rightness to someone whose opinion on the matter is irrelevant. Which brings me to Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving is a 24-year-old guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers, the first-round pick in the 2011 draft. He's a four-time All-Star, an NBA champion, and one of the best basketball players in the world right now. A world, apparently, he believes to be flat. This is not even a conspiracy theory, <laughs> Irving said on a podcast in February. The Earth is flat. It's right in front of our faces. I'm telling you, it's right in front of our faces. They lie to us. Some of us who happened to like watching Irving play basketball kind of hoped he was joking. <laughs> but a few days later, he doubled down on his earlier statement, telling ESPN during All-Star Week that, quote, I know the science. I know everything possible. Not everything possible. But the fact that that actually could be real news, that people are actually asking me that, I'm glad that it got people talking like this. Now this is dumb and bad. <laughs> the world, of course, is round. Something Kai Ridiculous would understand if he indeed knew the science and everything possible. But is anyone really hurt by him believing that he could fall off the end of the earth? The answer's probably no. As conspiracy theories go, flat earth trutherism is actually sort of charming. <laughs> Akin to believing that Stephen Wonder isn't actually blind. Or that Paul McCartney died in the 60s and the dude who founded Wings was an imposter. <laughs> Indeed, it's probably Kyrie's conspiracy theory that, er, rather, it's possible Kyrie's conspiracy theory may actually be said to have improved some lives, as it's allowed people like me to nudge my friend at the bar stool next to me while I'm watching the game to say things like, Kyrie's jumper's looking a little flat tonight, eh? <laughs> but he's still wrong! The goddamn world is round! This isn't a fucking debate! It's just reality! And we have, as a society, gotten into some deep shit recently due to the fact that we can't all agree on what the fuck reality is. And so I'm really awfully torn here. On one hand, like Phoebe not believing in evolution, Kyrie Irving not accepting that the Earth is round probably doesn't make that much of a difference. Like Neil deGrasse Tyson pointed out in his inevitable response, <laughs> Irving can believe whatever he wants, as long as he continues to play basketball and not become the head of any space agency. <laughs> On the other hand, though, 
The thought of someone absurdly conspiratorial and incorrigibly ill-informed ascending to the top of such an agency is not at all that far-fetched in a time when our government is dominated by dimwits in tinfoil hats. <laughs> and it would seem to me that perhaps part of the reason Trump and his carnival of bigoted weirdos were able to ascend to power is that we've, for too long, permitted a relaxed stance on the truth, agreed to disagree to the point where we've allowed the very definition of a fact to be muddied. It's baffling to me that he believes the Earth is flat. The dude went to Duke. Yes, I know that Duke is a douchebag factory. <laughs> yeah, he only went there a year. And he likely spent most of his time studying playbooks instead of textbooks. But it's still a good school, and he was still there. <laughs> this is a dude who travels on airplanes, going from fucking CC half the year, going all across. Does he ever look out the goddamned window? <laughs> Look out, Kyrie. You can see where the earth starts to bend. I mean, Jesus Christ, this is a guy who was born in Australia. Australia. Why the fuck do you think they call it down under? I don't know Kyrie Irving personally, but suppose I did. What would my responsibility be here? Maybe, you know, to rib him a bit, you know, ask him if he'd like to play a quick game of Around the World, say. But otherwise, otherwise I'd just let it go, you know, because his kooky-ass theory doesn't impact his, his ability to drop 20 points every night. Or is my responsibility to challenge him on it and trust that an apparently otherwise pretty smart dude would eventually see the truth? I don't know, man. I come from a family of arguers, the kind of people who debate shit with one another in a vaguely athletic way, and it's a tough thing to turn off. So I'm fully aware of that feeling Ross from Friends probably had when Phoebe called him out for being so preoccupied with convincing her that he's right and she's wrong. You feel like a jerk. You feel like you're completely wasting your energy, proving something to someone who won't really be able to do anything with that new, new knowledge anyway. So maybe LeBron was right when he said, simply, Kyrie's my little brother. If he decides the earth is flat, that's okay. <laughs> but maybe not, though. <laughs> we have a president who says he didn't, think, he didn't say things that we have video of him fucking saying. And maybe defending the truth against Donald Trump's lies means defending it on a smaller scale, too, starting in our own immediate social surroundings. We might clean our environments of falsehoods little by little the same way you might pick up a bottle cap your bud accidentally dropped on the living room floor. We don't have to argue all the goddamn time. We don't have to agree on everything. But reality can't be negotiable, at least not in the age of alternative facts. In 5, 10, 15 years, maybe then your friend or your uncle or NBA superstar Kyrie Irving can go back to believing whatever the hell they want in peace. For now, though, well, maybe not. Thank you.
Let's keep it going for like the ghost of Eric Lutz. We're recording this so he'll, he'll hear that you all liked it. Anyway, one of the things that I love about the flat earth conspiracy is that like no one, no one's getting anything out of that lie. Like, the only thing I can imagine is that like big airplane doesn't want you to know about like the second the second world on the on the underside of the disc that's like way better or all the air airline employees go whatever. Um, I don't have my little thing. Okay, our next op-ed writer is a uh, actor and solo performer. He is a regular performer at the living room at uh, where was that at? Uh, stage seven seven three. Stage seven seven three. Please welcome to the stage Mike Haverty, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. So I've been reading a lot of real news recently, and I've noticed some startling patterns. Uh, watching Donald Trump um, when he talks, when he talks to people, when he talks at other people, when he talks at other people about himself, his stance on immigration, his stance on the Affordable Care Act, his stance, like every sport coat, has a hanger still poking out of it. <laughs> His general neglect for social mores, his neglect of his generals in favor of more social media. To live in the moment right now is to observe every single horror that is happening under his presidency. But a pattern is emerging. I don't want to keep repeating what people are saying in the news. Pundits and writers are having their doubts of his facilities, and I think they're making a good point. Given the observable patterns of his behavior and what many news outlets have diagnosed, it is increasingly obvious that President Trump is in fact a lizard person here to lay eggs in the Earth's core. <laughs> when you look at the facts, they add up. First, he's not human. Second of all, for a person who knows how to close deals, he treats handshakes like he's constantly assessing the strengths of possible adversaries. <laughs> He is simply not right. And that's not me talking, that is actually Keith Olbermann. Keith Olbermann, in a two minute video essay, said there is something just not right about him. And spent this two minutes just talking about how Trump seems off. And I agree with Keith, Ol Keith Olbermann when he says our president is a lizard person. <laughs> that's what tips me off. In the last two weeks of February, long-simmering doubts of Donald Trump's personhood has become a narrative. Numerous op-eds and essays, armchairs, diagnoses of doctors, both real and fake. It started out promising. Al Franken appears on television. Dope. He states that a number of Republican senators and himself believe that something is mentally wrong with the president. This is a coded message. A sly one, too. Al Franken, Franklin, Al Franken secretly, deftly, keenly, subtly, tells us that we cannot trust our president. Al Franken states that we should not trust our president because he might be mentally ill. Mentally ill. Interesting. I do, I too think we should not trust our president, but for other reasons. I don't think he's fit to be president. He's a liar. 
He's a gaslighter, a sexual predator, a bigot, a murderer, a desecrator, a racist whose dad was in the KKK, a privileged asshole with teeth who time and time again spouts lies and blindly runs after those lies. I cannot list everything that is wrong with him, but here are some more. As a lizard person <laughs> trying to pass as human, he is not doing a good job. <laughs> it's like his only research was in learning English was speed reading a kid's book. And his entire knowledge is based on reading a child. If his entire knowledge is based on reading a child's book, it's probably a book called Bigly, The Sad Puppet Goes to Russia by Bill D. Wall. Lizard dude doesn't even know how to wear skin right. He had one human suit and he burned it. Did he leave it draped on his heat lamp that he sleeps under? Dude is so lizard, he needs four legs to walk downstairs. <laughs> but just to clarify, I'm only calling Trump a lizard person. I am not saying that anyone else was a lizard person or that the people who helped him win are lizard people. Some of them are just amphibians. You can tell them apart because they worship a frog. So what real reason would L. Franken have to call Donald Trump mentally unhealthy? L. Franken, are you saying that he is mentally unfit and needs help? Are you saying you don't want him in office? Do you want him to get help? Do you want him to be committed? Do you want him, or are you saying he's a lizard person? Because we can come up with theories about how his mind works all day. I have one. Thought experiment. Suppose Donald Trump is human. Say that his hair treatment regimen prescribed by his doctor, Propecia, has an active ingredient called finasteride. Um, this, in all of the lack of information that his doctor has given, we know that he actually takes Propecia. And has taken Propecia since the mid-90s. And clinical studies of finasteride, finasteride display a risk of cognitive side effects, including severe memory impairment, impaired problem solving, emotional flatness, and insomnia, along with, and this is true, practically every, every emasculating sexual and genital dysfunction you can think of. <laughs> like, bigly. <laughs> and the chances of finestatrides side effects occurring become even biglier over time, and more troubling Every side effect of this drug are irreversible. <laughs> it's actually called post-finasteride syndrome, and it is a huge pharmaceutical oversight for a doctor to take. But that too, even if there aren't clinical studies to prove it, does not apply to our president and his submental egg layer. This is a conspiracy theory. Every article doubting the mental health of the president or anyone is choosing to leverage stigma over practice. But what we have a wider but until we have a wider conversation of mental wellness and emotional intelligence, this theory is equally valid. He's tearing apart the EPA so they don't question the Dakota Access Pipeline drilling deep into the Earth's mantle, wherein Lizard Trump can build another absolutely aborted hotel to hatch eggs. <laughs> And that's better than questioning anybody's sanity. As far as covering mental health goes, I'm not the first one to say that the media has been a real soft boy. 
I think we've hit a time where the questions television journalists ask about mental health are finding explanations to why a person is acting instead of asking what is happening with mental health. What is mental wellness? Journalism doesn't have to call out insanity to call out emotional abuse. Journalism doesn't have to call out constant lying as a pathological affliction. Just call out a w lizard person. <laughs> Almost a wizard person. <laughs> as Donald Trump said, we all bleed the same blood. A deep blue metallic blood that melts steel. <laughs> they don't tell the frogs about that one. <laughs> they have theories. I'm also just a dreamer who wants to see one day just the lamest 2020 Dateline special about mental wellness and about toxic masculinity. Because as soon as it gets to that point where Dateline can just butcher it, it means we've gone somewhere. <laughs> Let us stand up for emotional intelligence and educate people on the abuse just on daytime news. Give people the tools to fight the side effects of this culture. And please don't call anyone insane unless they told you they are and it's okay for you to say it. If not, you're thinking it's a conspiracy theory. Fuck our lizard emperor and God bless the United States of America. Keep it going for Mike Haverty. Thank you so much. <laughs> Moving right along in the old op-eds, next person we're going to invite up to the stage is a journalist, skeptic, and <laughs> bullshit-fighting motherfucker, in, in her words, I mean, as, as you can tell. <laughs> she writes poetry on the blog Pimp to the Mouth Breathers, her journalism has appeared in The Guardian, The Chicago Reader, and The Huffington Post, among others. Uh, she writes about criminal justice, politics, and theater, and also this, Chloe Riley. Okay, so the tentative working title for this essay was um, Sexing Up Data Journalism in the Age of Trump, or alternatively titled just Jesus Christ Have Mercy on Our Fact-Loving Souls. Um, so this essay sort of framed around um, what is the place of data journalism in the unbelievably messed up, sick, sad reality we now occupy on a daily basis. Um, I don't know about all of you, but I have a very complex relationship with the sort of like quote unquote data circulating in the country. Um, it actually kind of reminds me a lot of the relationship I had with my fifth period Japanese women's studies class in college, um, which is that I really want to love it, but it's often technical and boring, and I end up doing that thing where I kind of half fall asleep and then slap myself back into attempting to give a damn about the tale of Genji. <laughs> you know, we've all been there. Um, but I digress. Donald Trump uh, may be like the arch nemesis of sexy, but the same can't be said about the news he creates, which is basically insta-clickbait heaven 
and ironically, sustaining the very news sites that the Trump administration would love nothing more than to ban from every White House cool kids club ever. Um, also, it's just plain hard for data, which is inherently boring and uninteresting as it is, to compete with headlines like, Donald Trump is actually a fascist, a real Washington Post headline that just came out a couple days ago. Uh, Donald Trump just suggested Obama is a secret Muslim, or this one from the week, uh, Donald Trump says he was the one that really broke the glass ceiling on behalf of women. What? <laughs> really? Really? Okay. Um, so, da so data digital journalism has sexiness working against it. Um, the other problem, though, is that we've somehow stumbled into an era where the government can choose to take away or manipulate some of the data if it wants to. You know, because that's a totally cool and normal thing to do. Um, you know, in January, when that man dominating our lives in a never-ending 24-hour news vortex took office, uh, the White House website was helpfully changed to eliminate all mentions of that confusing, misleading term, climate change, and replaced with the very clear and definitive, an America first energy plan. You know, because that isn't like about, this isn't like about the other countries or the planet or anything. It's just about America. So let me read you a little about what that looks like according to the Trump administration. Um, an America first energy plan. Energy is an essential part of American life and a staple of a world economy. For too long, we've been held back by burdensome regulations on our energy industry. President Trump is committed to eliminating harmful and unnecessary policies such as the Climate Action Plan and the Waters of U.S. Rule. Um, so to clarify, since your collective memory might be faltering now that the data no longer exists on the government's website, uh, the Climate Action Plan was Barack Obama's set of policies aimed at combating the causes of global warming, another term that we don't say out loud anymore because it's also helpfully been classified as an alternative fact. Um, and it's not just adults whose facts are being effed with, Earlier this month, ProPublica reported that the Energy Information Administration edited an educational government website for kids in order to significantly downplay the negative impacts of coal. Uh, because again, everyone knows it's cool to lie to kids. <laughs> what, what do they know? Anyway. Not, and it's not just climate change that's being messed with. Uh, the White, White House government's uh, website sections on LGBT, civil rights, healthcare have also been removed because really who needs all that stuff? All that was clearly just taking up space. And don't worry, at least none of these topics have been replaced with misleading information. Uh, instead, there are just currently several blank pages now thanking you for your interest on the subject and telling you to stay tuned as whitehouse.gov continues to be updated. Um, so I can see the way your brains are turning on this one, like, wait a minute, if you delete data off public spaces, it's going to be kind of hard to measure that data or get it in the hands of people who might be turning to the government to find information. Um, though Lord knows why their instinct would be to do that at this point. Um, and your brains would be right. Uh, so yeah, so like, data journalism is important, we all get that. Um, and, uh, but it sure is, can also be boring as heck and long and involved as well. Like lots of data can often equate to lots of reading and even more processing and thinking when sometimes all you want is an episode of Kimmy Schmidt and some junk food and, or even just a nice long afternoon nap with your cat. And these things are important too, but as responsible citizens of what's currently left of the country, 
we have to make a more valiant effort to read, process, and care about the data. And we also have to teach our journalists how to make us give a crap. Um, so I'd like to look at just really quickly two very extreme examples of news. Um, one of those came up the other day uh, to illustrate what data journalism and sexy news can learn from one another. All right, so we've got a Congress tracking tool, very sexy name, from political <laughs> analyst site 538. Uh, this beautifully constructed, very important tally of how often every member of the House and Senate votes with or with against Donald Trump. Um, then I'd like to, us to talk about an, art, an article from yesterday bearing the very prestigious headline, um, Kelly Ann Conway kneels on couch sparks debate. <laughs> um, and we're going to look at a version of this very serious breaking news item that NBC News had up. All right, so let's start with our tracking Congress tool. So data journalism is supposed to use very engaging infographics to tell a story, and this one does a great job. Um, it's very interactive, very cleanly laid out. You can search by Senate or House, or you can search by votes on specific bills or nominations. You can click through the data to sort it by party to see how often people vote with the president. It's a great and valuable tool. Truly, you should look at it and use it. But it's missing what I'd like to call the Kelly Ann Conway on her knees on a couch effect. <laughs> right? We all know what that is. Which leads me to our other article. Um, so the NBC story doesn't really mess around or mince words. It just dives right in. Photos of White House advisor Kelly Ann Conway kneeling on an Oval Office couch with her shoes on have sparked an online debate about decorum in the executive mansion. All right, so then after setting the scene, it pulls just as quickly back, allowing a sort of like storify of tweets to tell the story in lieu of traditional boring ass journalism. Tweet quote. If Kellyanne Conway's feet on the couch is the worst thing that happens to you, might I suggest helping at a food bank to see real-life problems? End tweet quote. Tweet quote. Michelle Obama's mama made Brock keep the plastic on that White House couch because of people like Kellyanne Conway. End tweet quote. And of course, seemingly endless, tasteless references to Monica Lewinsky because some people went the classy route. <laughs> the point here is that no matter what way you slice Kellyanne Conway on a couch, it's sexy and dramatic and gets you to read the damn story, which is huge. And our Congress tracker, though valiant and beautiful in its own special way, still needs to put some extra effort in to keep up. It's like currently the Jan Brady to Kellyanne Conway couch kneelings Marsha. If you could follow that one. <laughs> you know. Data is important, but engagement and context is really freaking important. It's not enough to, you know, give the data to the people and be so gracious as to not secretly delete it while you're doing that. You've also got to tell them why the heck they should care and get them to actively engage with it so that it sticks. Um, so in the name of trying to get us all to care and engage a little more, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to I'm kneel on this couch. So we're all paying close attention. Just like Kelly. I mean, it's a family show. No, it isn't. 
Okay, so I'm, I think this is how she was sitting when she was taking photos. Okay, so I'm going to tell you how our, how, our, how our Illinois congressional representatives have been voting these days while kneeling on this footstool, which is basically a couch, right? Yeah. Let's all put our pretend hats on, okay? Thank you. Um, okay, so let's focus, people, because remember, I'm telling you about the important things, like how your representatives are voting. Okay, so the percentages in the Senate aren't much of a surprise, right? We've got Tammy Duckworth, 33% with Trump. That's kind of high, actually, when she just started. And Dick Durbin, 23%. Good for him. Um, but the House was another story. Um, so just so you're aware, to date, um, Illinois Republican House representatives in the Congress have all been voting with Donald Trump 100% of the time which is not necessarily the same for other Republican House members from other states. So Illinois is just really knocking it out of the park. Um, so some of these issues that people have been siding with Trump in the state of Illinois, um, okay, all of our Illinois Republic Republican Congress people voted February 16th for the re uh, repeal of a rule requiring state and local governments to you know, give federal funds to qualified health centers if they perform abortions. So meaning no more, no more giving them money. February 3rd, repeal of a rule requiring energy companies to reduce waste and emissions. Again, repealing that. And of course, that whopper uh, January 13th budget resolution to appeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, okay, and how is this doing? How are we, is, is any of this sinking in? Is it landing? <laughs> I'm kneeling on a goddamn footstool for you people. Thank you. Okay, so who are these saints among men? Because let me tell you something else. It's all men representing Illinois' Republicans in Congress. Their names are Mike, Rodney, Randy, John, Adam, and Darren, to be precise. They should, they should form a little club and get leather jackets. Okay, so there's Adam. Adam Kinzinger of the 16th District who back in August said he would not support Donald Trump in November's election, but who since has literally voted with him 100% of the time. There's John Shimkus of the, of the 15th District, who's not shy about his discussing his joy at the thought of repealing the Affordable Care Act, and who came out in support of uh, Trump's travel ban. Uh, and then there's 12th District uh, Representative Mike Bost, real winner, who had a history of anger management issues during his time as a state rep here in Illinois, and who in January tweeting his, tweeted his undying support for the Mexican border wall. Great. <laughs> real winners. Um, but it's not all gloom and doom. She said as she sat up straighter on her footstool, uh, especially on the Democratic end. Uh, in this district, the 5th district, uh, the district of our Lord and Savior Cafe Mustache, <laughs> Can we just pour one out for that? I'm happy to report that Representative Luis Gutierrez has been killing it with a big fat 0% in support of Donald Trump on any bills. Yeah, can we get an amen, Luis? Okay, so anyway, in conclusion, <laughs> sex it up, data journalism. Give us the goods and keep railing against a government that's deliberately effing with our ability to find and process data. But you know, do it in a hot, compelling way that makes us care and remember, even if it means hopping on a couch and dropping to your knees. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Oh, I love Luis. I'm going to call Luis later in this very show with my own little voicemail. It's going to be great. Me and Luis, we talk a lot. Anyway, our next op-ed writer is an artist, writer, and computer programmer from Chicago. I don't know where you yeah, yeah. She's been featured at the Paper Machete Write Club, the Moth Grand Slam, and at the world-famous Uptown Poetry Slam at the Green Mill. If you ask her about how she maintains her vivid hair color, please specify if you want the one-sentence explanation or the 20-minute explanation. She is also co-producer of this very show. It's, it's Erica Dreisbach. Thank you. This is called, Who Trolls the Trolls? <laughs> the highest seats of global power are currently controlled by psychos and trolls. They have the control. <laughs> trolls, the way I mean it in this piece, are antagonists who push people's buttons, the psychic and verbal equivalent of, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, which is excruciating. Today's trolls are a human-robot hybrid army that harasses Jewish journalism, Jewish journalists with references to ovens, and harasses women with threats of rape, and Jack Twitter, that's his name, Jack Twitter, he mostly shrugs, well, he didn't touch you, so just ignore him, and meanwhile, the best and gentlest minds of my generation are being rotted out from the inside. There are three kinds of trolls in Presidential Trolls Army. There's just the plain ignorant, that's Sean Spicer, talking about that attack in Atlanta, or Betsy DeVos misspelling W.E.B. Du Bois' name, or citing historically black colleges and universities as great examples of school choice. <laughs> Happy Black History Month, everybody. And then there's the second level, like my girlfriend Kellyanne Conway, with her Bowling Green Massacre and her carefully staged photo ops, like the couch on her knees, vulva just a thin layer of cotton and nylon to the wind, and she's playing with her phone. And on her phone is a hologram of me, and she's saying, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. But she is. And then there's the real psychos, which are Bannon and President 45, and they transcend mere trolling. They are masters of psychological abuse. Last night's congressional address was delivered in a civil, coherent tone, and to the beaten down American liberal and the media, it was a relief, even though it also included actual Nazi policy plans like publicizing the crimes of a minority villainized by the regime. So what can we do? Who trolls the trolls? And can they be trolled? Can we use the master's tools to punch them in their Nazi faces? Shall we body shame him with statues of his assuredly, absurdly tiny penis? <laughs> it is thrilling and cathartic to use their own nasty little weapons against them. But let me tell you, there might be a better way. And it comes from a guy you might have heard of. A little guy named Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is real. So the Sermon on the Mount 
in the book of Matthew includes the very famous directive to turn the other cheek. And when it's invoked in American English, it's usually meant like just shut up and take it. But the way that my minister, Jay Sprout, which is the most Vermont minister name ever, Jay Sprout, the way that he described it to me was that in fact, turn the other cheek is a political strategy offered by an anti-government radical. So let me break it down for you. If you were a poor Jew in Galilee, there's Pharisees, there's Romans, they're trying to smite you down every day. But if they smite you, it's gonna be with the back of the left hand. Because to punch you would be to treat you as an equal. To use the right hand, this is, you know, this is symbolism and symbols and symbology. So to use the right hand was respect, and to use the open hand was respect. So there was one way to smite. Back of the left hand, smite. And what Jesus was saying was, turn the other cheek. Go ahead and hit me again, but if you do it, it will be as your equal. And now your smiter is faced with a choice. Subversive. The one about the coat and the cloak. If you get sued to remove your coat, also give up your cloak. Well, cloak means your underwear, and the coat was usually like your robe. So the idea being that if some uh, predatory lender is now suing you for your, your coat, you say, you know what, why don't you just take the whole thing because I'm going to die because I sleep in my coat. And then now you're naked in court, right? Totally vulnerable and naked and being viewing a naked body was also a sin in that culture. And it also is like super intense, like, you guys, just put your clothes back on, I'm sorry, like, we'll work something else, we'll work on a payment plan. And then the last one, go the extra mile. So there was a, a directive by Caesar that any Roman soldier could make you, make any Jew walk a mile carrying the water for that soldier. But these are Romans. They're really uptight about the law to the letter. So the idea being that if they say, hey, you carry my stuff, you get it one mile. And then you say, I mean, I could carry it an extra mile. I mean, like, nobody's around. See, I don't know why I'm like I'll just do it. <laughs> now, they're in a tough position because it would be great to have you carry this stuff an extra mile, but they would be breaking Caesar's law. So each of these three directives are psychological tools benevolently used, but they ask, they ask the oppressor to see you as a human. They ask you to be seen in a new way. Now, how does this translate into our lives? I don't know. I'm not as clever as Big JC in figuring out like how to do tools to like vanquish the enemy. He was really good. Um, so I don't know. But I know that we're not gonna out, I'm never gonna be able to out troll the trolls on their terms. It's gonna be keeping my eyes out for a subversive way, just those ways to say like, hey, you know, put me on that Muslim registry too, or um, slap me, but tell me that I'm a woman first or something. I don't know. 
not really, you know, that's the end. Thank you. Erica Dreisbach, everybody. Co-producer of this very show. Thank you. And the last op-ed, our final op-ed, headliner and op-ed, I mean, they're all equal, but let's say this one's the headliner. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a great writer and performer and podcaster. She is the producer of the live lit show, Is This a Thing? And uh, she's performed all over the city, and her podcast that she co-hosts and co-produces uh, is XX Will Travel, a podcast about uh, traveling for women. And as someone who is neither a woman or someone who travels, I can attest that the show is excellent. So if you are a woman who travels, imagine how great you will think it is. <laughs> Please welcome Ines Bellina. person that took Trump both seriously and literally on the campaign trail. And I did so in part because my innate terrible disposition towards life always bets on the worst case scenario. But my assessment also came from my knowledge and experience with Latin American dictatorships. So I'm originally from Peru, a country that has seen its fair share of authoritarian regimes the latest of which occurred while I was still in high school. Now, President Fujimori was, ele was democratically elected his first term after convincing the populace that his business experience would bring back jobs they never had to begin with. And then he spent the next decade or so changing laws to keep himself in power, bribing officials to get his way, spreading fake news and oppressing real journalists to sustain his popularity, and generally screwing over human rights with the excuse that it was in the interest of national security. Stop me if you've heard this one before. I spent most of my high school years in Argentina, a nation that was still dealing with the consequences of a violent military junta. And half of my family has been dealing with the own dystopian hell that is Venezuela, where Chavez's cronies continue to implement deformed social policies even after his death. So you can understand that my reaction to Trump's campaign announcement, where he declared Mexicans to be rapists and criminals, was an LOL and the creation of a meme. It was more, fuck, I did not want to watch a rerun of something I've already seen. Now, I'm not the only one to see the parallels between 45 and the actual real bad hombres that have ruled over Latin American countries. NBC News, Slate, Politico, the Miami Herald, and numerous outlets that will soon get banned from press briefings have all published articles about it. Over in the Washington Post, Ishan Tarur calls him a Yankee caudillo and points to his sense of self-inflation, his appeal to the forgotten working class, his sexist bravado, and his insistence on being owner of the truth, as shared traits with his Latino counterparts. Now, if you're shitting your pants for what is probably the 150th time since November 8, 2016, I don't blame you. But don't fear, because I, your friendly neighborhood immigrant, is here to help you. <laughs> so, if you want to survive, 
definitely listen to exiled Russians. Not me. The Russians are the ones you turn to for the kind of tough love that will secure your spot in a bunker. But if you want to merely have a good time while the world burns, then Latin Americans have got your back. This is what I can offer. So here are my top 10 tips for surviving your first dictatorship. Tip number one, let the women clean up the mess. And with the march in January, you guys are already ahead. So look back at any Latin American dictator worth their salt, and you'll see women giving zero fucks about their personal safety and showing up to yell obscenities at them. From Argentina's Madres of Plaza de Mayo to Guatemala's Rigoberta Menchu, women come armed with their chancletas, their death stares, and all the Freudian intimidation they can muster. Guys, this is when you can make like a sitcom dad and sit on the couch sulking. You already messed up big time by letting decades of sexist and racist remarks and actions slip because privilege is just really too good to pass up and also your drunk uncle scares you. So you don't need to make things exponentially worse. Tip number two, stop being cute about checks and balances. It's real sweet that so many of you put your trust in checks and balances as if they were actual, tangible Pixar cartoon heroes that said everything right with a little can-do attitude. Get ready to feel the same heartbreak you felt when you found out Santa doesn't exist. Authoritarian regimes pretend to have check and balances all the time. They still do whatever the hell they want. So unless you have actual checks that you can use to pay off politicians to vote the way you want, don't give a fuck. Tip number three, you better cure yourself quick of whatever made-up food intolerance you claim to suffer from. It can seem quirky and delicate now to give long explanations about how your body feels weird seas if food isn't organic, gluten-free, local, and blessed by a pagan witch named Hazel. But it's amazing how your body will all of a sudden have to strengthen stamina of a cross-country trucker named Bud once all there's left in the supermarket is some canned ham and a sack of cornstarch. This is not the time to emulate Zoe Deschanel. Tip number four. Wait for one of the kids to turn on him. Now, Eric, Donald, and Ivanka have all been programmed to follow the law of robotics, so you can't put your faith in them. My hopes on Tiffany. Yeah! <laughs> to the untrained eye, it may seem like her own father is shunning her. To me, she's hiding away in a secret lair, busy as a bee, working on a giant death laser directed at the White House. Yeah. Tip number five, you're going to need international allies. Surprisingly, this is where hipsters might be useful for once in their life. Now, if college kids are anything like they were back in, my day, back in my day, you can easily get them to side with you if you have sexy facial hair and name drop marks. And name drop marks. Dudes, I need you to start trolling the dorms of international universities with all the sexiness of a young Che Guevara and brush up on your vocabulary. You need to talk about heteronormativity. You need to talk about the working class oppression. You need to talk about structural inequality. Exactly. You use your tales of oppression as foreplay for all the sexual liberation you feel in other shores. <laughs> Tip six. If you're an artist, now is the time to be as obscure as humanly possible in your work and refuse to explain it. One of two things will happen. Either people will take it as a sign that the regime is so dangerous you are only able to talk in extended allegories to avoid legal repercussions, or 
It will be interpreted as an expression of an analysis that is so profound and critical, no one will want to contradict it. Because no one would want to admit that they don't get it. <laughs> and I can do this. All right. There we go. <laughs> and also because no one wants to admit they're idiots. For proof, see all the Trump voters who double down on their opinion, despite all the facts to the contrary. Tip seven, we need a foreign government to funnel funds to resistant groups. I say New Zealand. No one will suspect it. <laughs> it's too full of sheep for anyone to want to retaliate. Could bring a resurgence of good Lord of the Ring jokes. <laughs> Tip number eight, do what advertisers do and have zero moral qualms about selling stuff to the unsuspecting masses. Remember the Super Bowl ad of 84 Lumber about the border wall that appears on Trump's every wet dream? People were shocked at the realization that the CEO of 84 Lumber was actually a Trump supporter who donated to his campaign. The hypocrisy, the cognitive dissonance, the lies. How can the ad world be so cynical? Easy. They sold their money to the most Machiavellian capitalist forces after the dreams of becoming an artist didn't pan out. And I can say this because I work in advertising. Here's the thing. People don't buy things because ads give a list of well-established facts and a reasonable argument for why their product is the best. They buy shit because there's uplifting music in the background, pretty people smiling, and some nonsense feel-good platitude like real beauty is skin deep. We all know that's not true. This is how we need to present our liberal platforms from now on. You know what defeated Pinochet, the Chilean dictator? Not the memory of hundreds that had been brutally murdered in his reign, but a cheesy commercial from the opposition groups showing smiling f families, dancing in fields, and having picnics in parks. And that is a true story, and you can look it up. Tip number nine, start an unpopular war. This is a tough one because the US has been on a string of unpopular wars since before Oliver Stone knew how to growl. All I know is that Beyonce somehow has to be caught in the crossfires. It's the only way people get really incensed. I'm not saying I dislike her, I'm just saying it's the one thing that unites us, guys. And finally, my last tip. This is the one only to be used in case of emergency and the one to turn to when everything else fails. So tip number 10, leave the United States and try to find a better future in a country that is not your own. Woo! You will say goodbye to your family and friends. You will abandon comfort foods, inside jokes, cherished traditions, a whole way of life. You will work for years in low wage jobs as you wistfully look at your undergrad degree in biochemistry from an Ivy League institution. All while the people around you shout condescendingly, annoyed that you speak their language with a hint of an accent. This despite the fact that they themselves can barely spell correctly their own language when they ran on Twitter. You won't understand half the references and will have to decipher an alien social etiquette. This makes it difficult to have friends, so for many years you will live in isolation. You will rarely have enough money to go back home and only attend weddings, baptisms, and birthday parties via your Facebook newsfeed, that is if you have access to internet. Whenever things slightly go wrong in your adopted country, you will be thrown under the bus by politicians, neighbors, and even some friends. You, who have limited economic, social, and political power, will all of a sudden become a Marvel villain to millions of people. You will start to fear for your safety, and then you realize you've already seen this before, because you're watching the rerun you thought you had left behind. Thank you. What's more for Inez?
So concludes the op-eds. But before we move on to the debate portion, there's some housekeeping I'd like to do. And also I want to call Luis. You know Luis. We're calling him. But first, I just want to thank Cafe Mustache for being a delightful venue. You're all here. You know it's great. Buy drinks from them. Also, you may have noticed as you were entering that there is a donation bucket. If you put money in there, we take the money and we give it to the writers because they did work for you. And that's how art works. <laughs> Pay the writers. You don't have to donate anything if you don't have cash, you don't want to. But if you got some money, just yeah, it's fun. It's, it's good. It's a good thing to do. Also, we have merch. If you want to have like a skewer button, it's going to be great. Okay, that's taken care of. I'm going to call Luis now. Yeah. So some, a, a really crucial part of this bit is uh, preparation and checking that the voicemail boxes work beforehand. So guess what I forgot to do? So this might just not happen. Uh, but let's give it a shot. I'm going to call Luis about Representative Jason Chaffetz. Uh, you may know him as he's the head of the House Ethics Committee. I don't know the exact name. He's the ethics guy. He's in charge of vi uh, investigating ethics violations. And he's just not going to investigate Trump. He just said he's not going to do it. Just like I won't. Yeah. So I'm going to call Representative Gutierrez uh, about his colleague and just tell him what I think. So let's get him on the phone. ready to go. I have both offices. This, this one might not work either. We'll see. Yes. Yeah. 
I don't know. Wait. Jason Chaffetz. I just said someone to press zero, so I did. Oh, that's the NSA. Oh, yeah. Well, I want them to hear this, too. Yeah, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just call it. Luis, you, 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 you let me down. I was gonna tell him, I was gonna tell Luis that in order to represent me, what he should do is every time he sees Jason Chaffetz in like chambers and like around <laughs> the office, uh, to just be personally mean to him, like hostile, <laughs> openly, and ang and like not even about his policies, just like to him as a man. Anyway. <laughs> You can call him tomorrow during the day, during office hours, and tell him it yourself. Or, or you could not tell a joke and actually say some good shit like, you know, what, what he should be doing to resist Trump. You should be doing that anyway, and if you are, congratulations. Anyway, enough fucking, fucking around. It's time for the debate. <laughs> we gotta get our debaters up to the stage. First debater. Great Chicago stand-up comic, co-producer and co-host of two wildly successful showcases, including congrats, including congrats on your success, which is the first Thursday of every month, a day you might recognize as tomorrow. It is at Uncharted Books, just one stop north of here on the Blue Line. He was named the best comedian in Logan Square by Logan Squarest in 2015. Please welcome Bill Bullock. Time, guys. Yeah, I'm great. Yo, no joke. I haven't heard a lot of things you've written, but that opening monologue is probably the best thing you've written. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very proud of it. Thank it's you. Fucking fantastic. Oh, okay. Well, no, it, yeah, it was. I'm really good. Pretty fantastic. <laughs> anyway, enough, enough about that. I could talk about how I'm great all night. People who know me know this is true. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. But our second debater, because we need two. Uh, she's a writer and editor at Dose.com and OMG Facts. She was also once, in the same year, the champion of not only a spelling bee, but also a religion bee. That's two bees. What? Yeah. Yeah. Please welcome Aaron Klebundy. So what are we debating about? What, what's, what's the topic that needs discussing, that needs deciding? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll set it up. So, the Trump administration. They got these spokespeople, right? You got Kellyanne Conway. No one likes her anymore. No credibility. Sean Spicer. No one likes him anymore. No credibility. They're on their way out. Don't kid yourself. We're going to need a replacement. They, they, they tried Stephen Miller, but unfortunately he died several years ago, so he didn't work out. <laughs> Who's going to be the replacement? That's what we're deciding today. Who is the next Trump spokesperson? Bill, who are you arguing for? 
I'm arguing for Chris Christie with the possible spoiler alert that we have drugged him with a drug that makes him vomit all the time. Aaron, what are you going to be arguing for? The smell of death. (laughs) Beautiful. Okay, so the way the debate works is we're going to have opening statements. These two delightful people are going to read about five-ish minutes of opening statements telling you why their side is the right side. Then afterwards... Look at this, a beautiful human moment. Um, (laughs) After that, I'm going to ask them questions. You've not been given questions in advance, correct? No. They're going to be weird ones, as you can tell by the topic. You're going to have to answer. And then you're going to get about one, one, one and a half minutes to make your closing arguments. And then you guys, the audience, will decide the winner uh, as to who goes first. You, you go first. Hello. <laughs> it was very quiet when I did this part. I liked it better when you were... No, it's fine. It's too late. It's not important anymore. I have uh, an ego problem. Quite like our president. Um, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, members of Congress, esteemed guests, cabinet members, racist perceived and actual. (laughs) Thank you for being here. The state of our union is strong. President Trump has, in a truly unprecedented move by any elected president in the modern era, truly committed to actually following through with his campaign promises. He's begun the process of isolating this country from foes and allies alike. He's put plans in place to make sure the country is safe and strong and white as all fuck. But there's one promise he has yet to keep. And one person who is willing to do anything to make sure he does keep that promise. That man is Chris Christie. That's right, the old New Jersey donut hole himself. Chris Christie is a man who has given everything of himself to the president, and it's high time that debt is repaid. Chris Chris Christie started off criticizing Trump and correctly noting all of the reasons why the man is unfit to lead. But in in an extremely unselfish move, Christie decided to drop all of that bullshit when it was clear that Trump might win. And then it might benefit old Beefheart's career to get behind the orange despot. In the ensuing months after the flip from from opponent to head dick sucker in charge, we saw Mr. Chicken Nugget 2016 go out of his way to defend the future president's policies, no matter how nonsensical, and explain his actions and words no matter how inane, and generally just look like a defeated victim of spousal abuse all the time in the background of every appearance Trump made along the campaign trail. Which is truly hard to do because Melania was doing a really good job of that herself. For his extremely thorough efforts, Christie was rewarded with the extremely prestigious and not at all ambiguous role of head of the transition team after Trump was was elected. 
Things, things seem to be looking up for old Governor Trashmaster. But since Trump has taken office, we've heard nothing about what's next. When will Trump acknowledge what he owes Chris Christie? Yeah. You can only publicly mistreat a man who has publicly degraded himself so often before you have to, you know, give him a, an official title as your main stooge. Chris Christie is willing to do anything to be in Trump's cabinet. He's proven that. He's been through every humili humiliation we can think of. Trump has all but told him that he's not really ready for, you know, a serious relationship. But Chris <laughs> continues to get into that Cheeto dust president's bed over and over again. That's commitment. But there was one more trial Trump and his team wanted to put old Big Bones McTroll McHomophobe <laughs> through before giving him a real job. They gave him an experimental drug that can bring Chris Christie to the brink of vomiting at any given time. <laughs> and he took it. Gladly, in fact. Do you see how unselfish this man is? Do you see how he would do anything to serve at the pleasure of the president? He would do anything to give the, the president pleasure. You know what I mean? Look at his pained face as he stands behind Trump, looking like a second and a half away from running into the press corps and spilling his Taylor ham dinner all over the laps of those filthy fake news trolls from CNN and Huffington Post. If that doesn't make Chris Christie at least as qualified for a position on the cabinet as Betsy DeVos, I don't know what would. So I ask you, dear audience, let's come together and make Chris Christie great again. Are you with me? Thank you. Well, you're a very willing foe, but the next public representative for the Trump administration should be the smell of death. Why? Because, as it turns out, the smell of death is nuanced. It's a diverse and constantly evolving collection of compounds that wax and wane as a body decays, contributing to an odor some have described as sickly sweet. As the body decomposes, different odors are released. The following is from I Fucking Love Science. Real facts. Hexane is associated with the smell of freshly mown grass and butanol smells of leaf litter and forest floors. These are present in the earliest stages of decomposition. Some of the worst smells come somewhere in the middle. Chemicals released during the bloat stage, which occurs about a week after death, when intestinal bacteria are reproducing uncontrollably and producing vast amounts of farty gases, are more likely to have you reaching for the sick bucket. Dimethyl disulfide and trisulfide bring the smell of garlic and the stench of rotting cabbage to the proceedings. At this stage, indol also makes an appearance in high concentrations, imparting a strong fecal smell. Once the active decay stage is underway, maggots hatch and munch their way through the flesh of the cadaver, 
breaching the intestinal walls. At this stage, some more unpleasant smells join the heady mix. These include 2-methylbutionic acid, which smells distinctly of cheesy feet or teenage bedrooms, and trimethylamine, which is the aroma of day's old fish. In addition, there's a strong undercurrent of butyric acid, which reeks of vomit. As decomposition progresses, these substances are joined by other chemicals, including intoxicating amounts of phenol, which has a sweet, burning rubber-type smell. By the time skeletonization occurs, the odor-producing bacteria have been replaced by more mechanical means of decay, and the obnoxious smells are replaced by more woody, wet notes. (laughs) This encyclopedia of putrid rot is what the body releases when it's doing its job. In contrast, let's take a look at what White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer and Counselor to the President Kellyanne Conway release when they're doing their jobs. I'm being gracious with the term doing as it connotes a basic proficiency I'm not convinced either one has. When doing his job, Spicer releases childish insults. When a reporter asked why the president devotes his time and energy to making repeated statements about Nordstrom instead of other things, including the terrorist attack on a mosque in Quebec, Spicer replied, you're equating me addressing the nation here with a tweet? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. This is silly. Which uh, Melissa McCarthy did a lot better than I did. But (laughs) Spicer also releases malapropisms. He repeatedly trips over words and adds extra syllables, saying drum prices when he means drug prices, press office instead of press office, and inimplementation instead of implementation. He releases bald-faced lies. We already know things got off to a notoriously bad start when Spicer insisted that the crowd at Trump's inauguration was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, while photos and figures appeared to show the complete opposite. Meanwhile, counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway, releases alternative facts. I don't need to tell you about that one. She releases endorsements of commercial products. The Office of Government Ethics said there was a strong reason to believe Conway violated ethics standards when she plugged Ivanka Trump's fashion line on Fox and Friends during an appearance three weeks ago. Conway discussed Nordstrom's decision to drump Ivanka Trump products, saying, Go buy Ivanka's stuff is what I would tell you. It's a wonderful line. I own some of it. I'm going to give a free commercial here. Go buy it today. Everybody, you can find it online. Today, CNN reports that she acted without nefarious motive and no disciplinary action will be taken. And Conway spews more lies like the time she uttered the entirely fictional Bowling Green Massacre as justification for Trump's travel ban. Both Conway and Spicer have spent their tenures making enemies of the press, brazenly making outlandish and transparently false statements, all to fluff the ego of the demagogue whose ass they are so far up they've taken over the work of Trump's kidneys. (laughs) So by now you're probably wondering, how could the smell of death succeed where Conway and Spicer have failed? (laughs) Easy, by actually fulfilling its purpose. The smell of death, after all, serves biological and forensic functions. As scientists work to identify all the chemical compounds that make up the smell of death, to date more than 480 have been identified, they're hopeful that it may one day be possible to use the scents wafting off a cadaver to determine the cause of death, as some medical conditions may encourage certain bacterial growth. Not only could it help determining the time of death of a victim, it would also lead to more scientifically rigorous training of cadaver dogs 
These are the dogs who are brought in after an earthquake or other natural disasters to search for human remains in the rubble. All this and more can be accomplished by the smell of death. <laughs> Meanwhile, Spicer is going to continue his crusade to erode trust in the media, and Kellyanne is going to continue to, I don't know, kneel on his sofa with her feet tucked under her like a teenage girl at a slumber party. And both of them are going to do all this while holding up a mirror to everything that is xenophobic, fear-mongering, jingoistic, and just plain small-hearted in the Trump cabinet. Make America great again! Bring in the smell of death! A spirited bout indeed. <laughs> so now's the question and answer portion. Guys, I got questions for both of you. You got answers? Probably. Uh, awesome. Bill, you're, you're getting first. You're getting it first because you said some words to me. So this drug that we're giving to Chris Christie, yeah. we can't just give it to him in like a pill. It has to be given in a really humiliating way, like an absurd way. How do you propose we give him this drug? Um, so when I was 22, <laughs> I had a girlfriend in college. And I went to a Catholic university. So they didn't really like to give us condoms and stuff there. Uh, or sell them. Or have them available anywhere on campus at all. So we didn't use them. And... Uh, Let's say, hypothetically, I got what I thought might be an STI from someone who is less scrupulous than me. Um, when you go to the campus nurse and you say, hey, I think I might have an STI at a Catholic school, they unnecessarily want to make you feel bad. And so they'll do things like swab your urethra with a gigantic Q-tip. And it hurts a lot, because it's... Ladies, you know what this is like, sticking a dry piece of cotton up somewhere where a dry piece of cotton shouldn't probably be ever. That's how we administer the drug. That story was hypothetical. Okay. Well answered. Aaron. Smell of death. One of the things that one of the things that you note right away about the smell of death, unable to speak. What are some challenges that are going to come from having a spokesperson that cannot speak, and how do you propose we overcome them? Um, I think I've already addressed this question, Tom. <laughs> Uh, it was somewhere in the beginning of my talk when I said that um, something about farty gases. <laughs> Damn, I can't. Oh, okay. The worst smells come somewhere in the middle when intestinal bacteria are reproducing uncontrollably and producing vast amounts of farty gases. And since um, since what Spicer and Kellyanne Conway are, is, are spewing right now is something, something even lower denominator than a fart. It's more like a, it's like a shart, or it's like a, or it's just like a little bit of pee that comes out when you're laughing too hard. I think, I think farty gases would be a big improvement. That's an elevation of yeah. 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 Yeah.
we're, we're allowed to do that. Anyway, Bill. So, so you, you mentioned that Christy took this drug willingly that, that brings him to the brink of vomiting all the time. Right. What, how, I posit to you, how about we just don't tell him? What would that be like? Don't. Don't tell him. Don't tell him he took the drug. Well, no. It's too late. <laughs> he took it. Like, we were like, hey, we might give you a position on the cabinet, but you have to take And he took it. Like, I... <laughs> Do we tell the public? I didn't even finish the sentence. Why would we tell the public? We don't have to tell the public anything. He's going to tell the public whatever we tell him to tell, and then he's going to puke immediately afterwards. We don't... I don't... I don't see the... Do you see how he's the perfect candidate for the cabinet? Because he'll do literally whatever we tell him to do. Okay. That makes sense. That's a good answer. Aaron, one of the benefits... I mentioned a downside of of the smell of death. Can't speak. Here's a benefit. Unlike most spokespeople, the smell of death can be in multiple places at once. How, how can the Trump administ- administration exploit this benefit? Um, I think the Trump administration could easily exploit this benefit by just sending the smell of death to the, the places and the populations that Trump hates the most. You know, like, like, let's just let's just send the smell of death out to all of these like JCC centers that are getting bomb threats this past week to tell them like to tell them like, hey, I'm when I speak to the press, I'm going to act like I care about you guys. But really behind closed doors, like, fuck you all. And and the smell of death will be quite like omnipotent in that sense. Yeah, the smell of death gets the last word. Wafting. Bill, what happens when Chris Christie, he's going to get too complacent. He's going to get used to vomiting all the time. It's not going to bother him anymore. We're going to need to add a secondary effect to this drug. What should it be? (laughs) Well, Tom, I feel like I kind of addressed this already in, in so far as... Here's the thing about Chris Christie. You think that the vomiting is a problem for him. (laughs) Or something that he's going to need to get used to. But it's actually quite like when you are a black person and the country elects a blatant racist. And then all of your white friends suddenly realize that you weren't just loud and angry all the time. But that racism was actually real the whole way through. (laughs) Once you get to that point, even though the worst has happened, the realization that the worst has happened amongst everyone is actually a relief. So I say for Chris Christie, actually getting to vomit (laughs) after doing all the things that he's done for the president, some of which I'll get into later. Vomiting is actually a relief. Like, it's actually... There's no getting... It was what he was waiting for. He didn't even know that's what it was when we gave him the the drug up his urethra and the Q-tip. But when he found out that it was, oh, I get to puke all the time? 
he was relieved. Okay. So, I hope that answers your question. It does, it does. Good answer. <laughs> Aaron. People in the back are just dying. <laughs> smell of death. It's, the thing about the smell of death is that it's so well known. Everyone knew about it even before Trump. How is it going to be a representative for Trump's brand when its own brand is so strong? How can you make sure that it's seen as part of his brand and not as some flashy stunt casting? Um, I think the secret to that is Twitter, Tom, clearly. I think that prior, prior to this new era, prior to this presidency, um, the smell of death was confined to, uh, to spaces where, where more enlightened individuals didn't necessarily dare to tread. It was confined to coffins and morgues and Breitbart. <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden, you know, the smell of death got a hold of a smartphone and it downloaded the Twitter app. And it became sentient and learned that it could it could conduct its odor uh, across space and time through the help of uh, Jack Twitter, this guy who very unhelpfully uh, refuses to regulate um, pungent odors on its on its app. I like it. I like it. Donald Trump. Donald Trump is going to retweet the smell of death constantly. Oh my God. You know, I think I've got, I think I got a, a lot of answers out of you both. I don't want, I want to bug you more with questions. I think it's time for closing statements. Uh, Bill, you went first before. I How mean, about you go sure. first again? I don't know. The problem with using tablet instead. Of Aaron, you go first. <laughs> tablet requires passwords. All right. There are 480 compounds that scientists have identified in the smell of death. 480 compounds is more brain cells than the entire Republican Party put together. <laughs> the two best characterized compounds in the smell of death are cadaverine and putrescine, foul-smelling molecules that repel most animals. And doesn't that sound like a metaphor? <laughs> Immediately after Trump's election, the Southern Poverty Law Center reported a dramatic uptick uptick in reported incidents of hate crimes. This was like right after the election when there were like swastikas on like on like baseball dugouts and like every single day like the, like the ticker on the Southern Poverty Law Center website was just going up and up. Just this past week, Jewish community centers across the U.S. received hundreds of bomb threats, literally hundreds. The animals are out. They're rabid and they're out for blood and we could really use some foul smelling molecules to repel them. After what I wrote to the uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it has come to my attention that Chris Christie, the beast boast of the East Coast, turned down positions in Trump's cabinet to be Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and others. <laughs> you guys, these are extremely prestigious roles, right? of which he's very much qualified for, right? Like, 
he has no military experience, so that makes him perfect for Veterans Affairs. And he lives in the most secure state in the Union, so he should be the Director of Homeland Security, right? Why would he turn these two great positions down? I don't understand, and I just, I, oh, okay. I'm going to try and adapt the rest of this to this. Um, mm, I'm just going to... Ooh, okay, there's nothing here that I can use anymore. Um, Chris Christie has decided to go back to being governor, uh, after which he will move on to the private sector. How ungrateful of him! I don't understand... Doesn't he know that a president requires his political allies and appointees to say yes to positions offered no matter how nonsensical and ridiculous those nominations may be? Well, you guys, with this new knowledge in tow, it's become abundantly clear to, to this writer that Chris Christie, the Garden State's favorite balloon animal, absolutely deserved to have that experimental drug shoved up his urethra. For his insolence against our dear reader, we will soon watch with glee as he regurgitates the contents of his stomach, uh, which includes an entire family of two adult chickens, their clutch of 16 baby chicks, 17 donuts, a.k.a. a New Jersey baker's dozen, three tires from his gubernatorial motorcade vehicle, uh, my debate opponent's candidate, the smell of death, and of course, just a gallon of Donald Trump's orange streak jizz. So I'm sorry for wasting your time. Thank you for listening, and God bless the United States of America. Except for Chris Christie. Fuck him. So we got we got to decide a winner. And you're thinking, winner? What are, what are they competing for? A prize? Well, yes. Kablamo! It's a skewer! <laughs> I'm just kidding. This prize is stupid. This prize is like a gag. This is just a skewer you get from, like, the store. This is stupid. No one wants this. Fuck this dumb gag joke. We're not having that as our trophy. No, we're having a skewer that has a little bobble on the end. Whoa! So only one of these two fine people are correct in what they were trying to tell you. Only one of them is going to bring home this delightful skewer. Who's it going to be? You're going to decide. Mark, my brother, you're always the judge because you always sit right there and you're, that's where I look. Do you want to judge who gets the louder applause? Great. If you believe that the winner of this debate with Chris Christie about to puke all the time was Bill, clap now. If you believe the winner of this debate with the smell of death was Aaron. Clap now. I agree. <laughs> Fuck Chris Christie. Both, both great bits. Both hilarious. I loved it all. You just break the skewer in half. But who's the winner? It's done. You all, you can go. 
Yeah, that was the skewer. That was the show. Thank you all for coming. Our delightful co-producer Erica has a, has a merch box right here and a and a email sign-up list. She sends great emails. You're gonna love them. My voice cracked. I'm 12. Wow. Oh my god. But anyway, yeah. Thank you so much for coming. That's been the skewer. I've been Tom Harrison. I love you all. It's been a great time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts, really. Um, Also, you can come to a live show. Again, we're at Cafe Mustache every first Wednesday of the month, 8 p.m. And you can also like us on Facebook. Uh, and you can email us at skewerchicago at gmail.com. Like, if you want to know more or perhaps, you know, if you want to be in the show, drop us a line. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time.